Good morning, Sun Valley. I, uh, before we begin, I'd like to take a moment and just thank you uh, for praying for me over the past uh, couple months with the different things I've experienced, latest being a surgery on my throat. Um, and for those of you who prayed that it would affect my voice, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Sometimes God says no. <laughs> but seriously, I do thank you so much for praying for me over the past, uh, I don't know, 13 months, I guess, really. Um, just God's been doing work in my heart, and I'm so thankful that um, you've been with me and prayed with me through it. God has been good and gracious and merciful to me, and so I'm so thankful. Speaking of prayer, if you haven't already guessed, that's what we're looking at today. We're thinking about um, this response to a relationship with God, intimacy in prayer. Martin Luther said, to be a Christian without prayer is more possible than to be alive without breathing. What do you think about that? Seems that preaching about prayer always seems like the uh, preacher is prying into forbidden personal territory, uh, no matter how they couch it, and it rarely seems to produce any meaningful effect. <clears throat> but alas, today's text is on the matter of prayer, and so I think it's God's will that you hear it. And maybe a few of you will be touched by the Spirit of God, and, and, and maybe uh, He will do a work in you this morning as it relates to prayer in your own life. God created us, as you know, specifically and intentionally to be finite beings, to be dependent beings. None of us is infinite. None of us is independent, truly. We may think we are, but we are not. Uh, and our physical world proves that. We need air, right, to breathe. We need food to sustain. We need uh, love and affection to remain sane. We're finite beings, we're dependent beings. And so <clears throat> we have needs that God intentionally built into us as creatures. And, and one need more than all others is the need for God. <clears throat> so today we're gonna to take a look at Psalm 119 verses 145 and 146. So if you have a Bible, I'd like you to open it to that passage, Psalm 119, verses 145 and 146. And again, we're going to see God's wonderful, wonderful provision for our spiritual life. Why? Because we need it. <laughs> and we're going to see it here, I think, clearly. The verses read like this, With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes, I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. Now these verses um, continue the logical sequence that we've been working on for a few weeks, at least in my preaching, uh, of one who's been affected by a genuine knowledge of God. And so we have, we have something that began back in verses 137 through 144, the previous stanza, 
where we were challenged to truly, genuinely, authentically know God. Not just know about him, but know God. And then we read in verse 139, my zeal consumes me. We discover that the person who truly knows God is actually a person who becomes zealous for God and for his word because of that knowledge. And as you know, at that time, we challenged each of you who attend Sun Valley Church to pick up a daily Bible reading plan and fill your heart with the Word of God in 2021. Allow the heart of God found in His Word to saturate your heart as you live life in 2021. So these two stanzas, <clears throat> the Tzade stanza and now the Quoth stanza, they reveal that zeal for God and his word will always be paired with an interest in communion with him. Let me say that again. Zeal for God and his word will always be paired with a desire, an interest, a passion for communion with him. And communion with God is central to the Christian life, wouldn't you say? Uh, in fact, we would rightly say that unless you are in communion with God, you are not experiencing the Christian life. Communion with God is the Christian life. An important part of communion with God is an active prayer life. Do you see the, the progression here? Communion with God requires us to know our needs and be willing to go to God with those needs. So knowing God produces a zeal for God. A zeal for God produces a desire for intense and intimate communion with God. And that results in an active meaningful prayer life. From knowing God to praying is all one piece. And so this is how, this is what God wants and let me tell you how God produces an active meaningful prayer life in you. The more you experience life, the more you understand the value of prayer. That's why generally People that have lived longer pray more. It's not that they have no ability to do anything else, so you can just pray. They actually see the value of prayer. Life teaches us the necessity of praying like the psalmist here is describing. Struggling through a difficult marriage teaches us to pray earnestly. Experiencing the heartache of a wayward child teaches you to really pray. Losing your job brings you face to face, with, uh, face to face with a real need and the necessity of crying out to God for help. Seeing a loved one struggle through the end of life drops you to your knees, pleading with God. Fighting the monster of depression draws our pain-filled hearts towards God. Life teaches us to pray. And praying teaches us that the only effective prayer is earnest prayer, and that's the focus of our time together. Praying teaches us that the only effective prayer is earnest prayer. Life teaches us to pray, but praying teaches us to pray earnestly. So let me ask you some questions <clears throat> to help you tune in with me this morning. What's more likely, that prayer doesn't work or that we don't pray as we should? What keeps our prayers from being answered? What keeps us from really praying about things, really praying about things, especially when there's no crisis?
Could it be that our lives are too easy, that we see no real need to pray? Or could it be that we just have seen no answers to our prayers that we had hoped, and so we give up on prayer, concluding that it really doesn't work? There are many possible and biblical answers to these questions, but today I'm going to just focus on answering the questions that the text does, verses 145 and 146. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to look a little bit at prayer today, uh, intimate, earnest prayer, and why our prayers must be earnest, in fact, if we hope to have a genuine communion with God and a meaningful and effective prayer life. I, I think you would answer yes to this. Do you want an effective, meaningful prayer life? <laughs> I mean, do you know a Christian who would say, nah? No, we all would, right? We, we want to have authentic communion with our God. And that requires an effective and meaningful prayer life. So let, let's, let's dive into this text today. <clears throat> and as you've learned, as we've studied through uh, this wonderful chapter of Psalm 119, we, we need to go outside Psalm 119 to understand the content of Psalm 119. And that's unique, by the way, to Scripture. So let's look at the first point that you'll see in your bulletin. The call to earnest prayer. <clears throat> the nature of prayer demands earnestness. Think quickly about what prayer is. And if you don't arrive at the conclusion that it must be earnest, you're not thinking clearly about prayer. <laughs> prayer, rightly understood, is something very profound. We're talking to God. We are talking to God. Is there anything more profound in life than that? We're speaking with the sovereign God of the universe. We're talking with the one who is responsible for all existence. He's also the one who became man and lived and died to reconcile us to himself. He's the one who knows and directs the future. So when you're speaking to him, it ought to be earnest, right? Can you imagine a scenario where your entrance into his presence would be flippant? Let's say you had a job at Amazon, a lower level job at Amazon, and you had some concerns about the workings of your office. You had some personal concerns about what Amazon was doing or where they were going as a company. Uh, and then you got an email from Jeff Bezos' personal assistant inviting you into his office in Seattle a week from Thursday, and you have five minutes. How would your approach to that meeting be? Hey, Jeff, how are you doing? Uh, it's good to see you today. How's the golf game? You been out golfing much? Well, man, those Seahawks had kind of a disappointing end of their season, didn't they? Oh, your time's up. Goodbye. What? Is that how you would go into that meeting? Zero chance of that happening. God is infinitely greater than Jeff Bezos. How do you go into those meetings? Hey, man upstairs, how's it going? I don't think so. Right? These two short verses in Psalm 119 teach us, we discover that our whole heart must be engaged in our cry and all of our needs are on the table. Not that we just have five short minutes. As Andy pointed out, we can approach him at any time 
with anything. But when you approach, you're approaching the king of the universe. So he says, with my whole heart I cry, answer me, I call to you, save me. He's asking for pardon, access for God to develop holiness in his life, to give strength for the day, to give comfort for discouragement, to prepare me for heaven. Prayers like these are constantly on the lips of those who pray earnestly. Save me from myself, save me from Satan, save me from the world, save me from the power of sin. All are part of these earnest prayers to God. Reasons for earnest prayers. Let's, let's think about this in more detail. I've got a few points here under the, the earnestness of prayer, and the first is reasons for earnest prayer. <clears throat> Our prayers must be earnest because that is one of the reasons the Holy Spirit was given to us. You realize that? When you come to Christ by faith, the Holy Spirit is given to you. Actually, <laughs> it's actually the other way around. The Holy Spirit's given to you, and then you come to Christ by faith. He was given to us, though, and Romans 8.15 tells us this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This is how we approach the God of heaven, through the initiating work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Our prayers must be earnest because that's the reason the Holy Spirit was given. Secondly, our prayers must be earnest because all strong and faithful believers in history have been earnest praying people. There hasn't been one strong strong and faithful believer throughout Christian history who hasn't been earnest in their prayers. Not one. Do you want to have deep communion with God? Do you want to be a person who has meaningful and effective prayer life? Then earnest prayers is a prerequisite. Biblical examples, Abraham. Remember how earnest his prayers were for Sodom and Gomorrah, for his offspring, for his wife, King David. The Psalms are filled with his earnest prayers. Daniel, Hannah praying for a son, Paul, and then all the historical examples we're familiar with, Thomas Akempis, John Bunyan, David Brainerd, John Patton, Hudson Taylor, George Mueller, A.W. Tozer, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, And the list goes on and on and on as examples to us of those who have learned to pray earnestly versus flippantly. Thirdly, our prayers must be earnest because God only answers earnest prayers. There's one for you. You want your prayers answered? There's an answer to one of our first questions. Your prayers must be earnest because God doesn't answer, doesn't respond to any other type. And the the scriptures are filled with support for this point, but let me just read for you Psalm 34, 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. What are the righteous doing? They're crying for help. Does that sound flippant to you? No. And by the way, this doesn't mean that God doesn't want to hear all of your prayers, even about small things. He does. You can be very earnest in small matters, can't you? Of course. We're not saying that your prayers have to be earth-shattering issues, but you do have to be earnest about even the small prayers that you may be praying. And there's an important difference between earnest and flippant. 
and has nothing to do with the size or the amount or the thing you're praying about. Our prayers must be earnest, fourthly, because any other kind does not suit God. Again, the king of the universe is in play here. God has no interest in rewarding lukewarm prayers, disaffectionate interest in him. Why would he reward that? God is serious about himself and expects us to be as well. Flippant praying proves that we don't believe in what we're praying for or in whom we're praying to. Friends, we must be earnest in our prayers. Now, let's look at identifying earnest praying in our own lives. And you might be sitting there, am I an earnest prayer? Do I pray earnestly? Well, let me me help you out with that question. Again, these things are seen in these two verses. Number one, heartfelt affection, not loud or eloquent prayers. You remember what we just heard read from uh, Matthew in the Lord teaching his disciples how to pray? Don't stand on the corner and shout out your prayers so everybody can hear. It's not the, the loudness of your prayer that makes it earnest. It's not the eloquence of your prayer that makes it earnest. It's heartfelt affection that makes it earnest. Our groans and tears are the kind of language that God understands. He doesn't require you to be eloquent or loud. Have you ever just sat and groaned before the Lord, your heart being so heavy that you don't know what to say? That's called an earnest prayer. God hears and he understands those kind of prayers. John Bunyan wrote this helpful thought. In prayer, it's better to have a heart without words than words without heart. Does that make sense to you? That's what we're talking about. Secondly, if you want to identify earnest prayer, besides having heartfelt affection, not only for who you're praying to, but what you're praying about, is this. The flesh is not the motivating factor. Your flesh, your your worldly experience is, is not the motivating factor for your prayers. It's stirred by the Spirit. In your Bibles, turn with me quickly to Romans 8, which talks about the Spirit's involvement in our prayer life. Romans 8, and look at verse 27 with me. Paul says this, And we know that for those who love God, I'm sorry, um, 8.27, And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, assisting our prayer life, praying for us, and who else knows the mind of God, the heart of God, better than God himself? Friends, the flesh is not the motivating factor. The Holy Spirit is the motivating factor behind earnest prayers. Our worldly desires are not the source from which our earnest prayers come. So, if you find yourself praying about worldly things, uh, God, I really need a new boat. My old one's looking old. Uh, It'll give you a clue as to whether or not it's an earnest prayer or a worldly one. You remember in James chapter 4, verse 3, James said this, You ask or you pray for things and do not receive because you ask wrongly. Why? To spend it on your own passions. That would fall into the fleshly category. 
of prayer, right? God doesn't answer fleshly prayers except with this. Nope. <clears throat> the earnestness of our prayers is seen in a desire for what would bring God glory and make much of Jesus, not things that would bring us comfort and make much of ourselves. <clears throat> in Hosea chapter 7, verse 14, listen to this. They do not cry, speaking of the people of Israel, they do not cry to me from the heart. They don't, they're not praying earnestly, but they wail on their beds for grain and wine. They, gnash, they gash themselves, they rebel against me. Fleshly prayers. They wail and moan for new cars, personal benefit, fleshly prayers. And they may think that it's a good prayer because they're wailing and moaning about it. But what does God say it is? It's an act of rebellion. Being consumed with prayers for your own personal uh, worldly passions is actually rebellion against God. And I'm, I want you to hear something. It's not wrong to ask for comfort, relief, assistance in physical things, but we should examine those prayers to see if their, their origin is the Holy Spirit or from our own desire for comfort, our own desire for um, status, our own desire for worldly things. And those things, if the, even if they are sourced from the Holy Spirit, should, should not take first place in our praying life. This stanza, the co-stanza that we're in right now is an amazing wake-up call to our prayer life. If we are made to worship, which we are, then earnest prayer ought to be part of our daily lives because earnest prayer is in the middle of public and private worship. One could argue that unless there's evidence of earnest prayer, there's a lack of evidence of a transformed heart. That's a sermon for a different day. Let's look at uh, impediments to earnest prayer. What's keeping you from earnest prayer? If you've been listening so far and you are concerned that maybe your prayer life isn't as earnest as it ought to be, what are some things that may be standing in the way? First is this, lack of understanding of our true needs. <clears throat> The psalmist here obviously understood his needs. Until we truly understand our spiritual needs, we'll never be plead with God to fix them. If you think all is hunky-dory, what are you going to pray for? So we must begin by understanding our true needs. How well do you really understand yourself, your circumstances, your spiritual needs? The more we grow in understanding our spiritual needs, the more we will plead with God to earnestly accomplish in us the only thing that he can do, a changed life. One of the blessings of hardship is that it alerts us to our needs and brings us to a place of earnestness and fervency when praying. This is why throughout scripture, including in this particular psalm, we see um, the authors thanking God for trials. Uh, consider it all joy. Remember, James, when you encounter various trials? That's not normal, at least outside the church. 
You remember the story of Jonah, right? <clears throat> when did Jonah's prayers become earnest? When he was soaking up the rays on the boat to Tarsus? Or when he was in the belly of a big fish? You know the answer. It's a good thing to think about. So the first thing that impedes earnest prayer is a lack of understanding your own needs. Secondly, unconfessed or unconfronted sin. If we harbor sin in our hearts, the Bible tells us that God will not hear our prayers, even as believers. The only prayers that God hears from someone who's harboring sin or keeping sin unconfessed or unconfronted is the prayer of confession, contrition, repentance. So do we have unconfessed sin in our lives that's impeding earnest prayer life? And you're thinking, well, no, I haven't killed anybody this week. I haven't robbed any banks. Um, let's go one step below that. Are you loving sacrificially as we're called to? Are you giving, serving sacrificially as we're called to? Unconfessed or unconfronted sins impede an earnest prayer life, according to Scripture. So if you're wondering, why can't I get to this place of earnestness? Why can't my prayer life ref reflect verses 145 and 146? Look in the mirror. Try that for, for starters. Are there sins in my life that I'm unwilling to deal with? And you're saying, well, that's just a minor. What? Is there sin that you're unwilling to deal with? Are there minor sins in God's mind? No. <clears throat> if we understood the holiness of God, we'd understand that he doesn't play games. He wants us to deal with our sin. Thirdly, the third impediment, spiritual apathy. Spiritual apathy and weak praying go together. One of the greatest concerns of many of the biblical authors is spiritual indifference. When the concerns of this world dominate your life, <clears throat> spiritual interests always take a back seat. You ever notice that? If we understood prayer, we'd realize that it is a gift from God to fight against this very thing, spiritual apathy. In fact, this ought to be an ongoing prayer of yours. Lord, guard me from spiritual apathy. Remember the Sermon on the Mount that Pastor Rick is preaching through? Um, Jesus taught that those of us who know God are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. How's your hunger and thirst? Lack of earnest prayer reveals a lack of hungering and thirsting. The fourth thing that impedes our earnest prayers is weak faith. <clears throat> So many prayers to Jesus recorded in the Gospels are based on faith. And you know, when people came to Christ asking for things, that's a, it, was a, it was prayer. They were speaking to God, and so it was a prayer, even though it was face-to-face. -face. You remember the, the leper who came to Jesus and said, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Did he have faith that Jesus could do that? Yes, that's why he came. Um, you remember the blind man on the road to Jericho? Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Why did he pray that? Because he believed that 
the son of David could have mercy on him. Do you believe that God can do for you what you're asking? Or do you just think it's the right thing to pray in, during family devotions? God, please save Uncle Bob. Next prayer. Or do you really earnestly pray for Uncle Bob's conversion in front of your children? Do you believe that God can do that? Friends, God desires holy earnestness in our prayers. These couple of verses here describe the prayers of one who is up to his ears in the challenges of life. This guy is just like you. He's got issues. And this is his response to those issues. This is the directive of Scripture. This is the desire of God. This author not only struggles with life and, and how to deal with it, but he's also convinced that God is interested and desires to be involved. There's a great example of earnest prayer in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 4, um, verse 12, Paul writes this, Epaphras, who's one of you, a servant of Jesus Christ, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. The word struggling there, Epaphras was struggling in prayer, comes from the Greek word where we get our English word, agonize. Epaphras was agonizing in prayer for the Colossian people. This is an intensity of prayer. It's an earnestness in prayer that I want you to recognize. People of Sun Valley Church, we must be people who agonize in our prayers for things in our own lives and agonize in our prayers for one another. We must have a great desire to see God show up, not only in our life, but in the lives of our, our friends and people in this church for God's glory and for their good. What a word, agonize. So how do we do this? <clears throat> how can we be earnest praying people? How do we avoid the pitfalls, the impediments of earnest prayer? I'm going to share, share some ideas with you that might stir up this in your heart. The first is this actually desire the things that you're praying for. Desire them. Proverbs 2, 3 through 5, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as a hidden treasure, then you'll understand the fear of the Lord. Do you really want it? Like coaches say to their teams, you got to want it. Like pastors say to their congregants, you got to want it. Secondly, believe that God is willing and able to help. Do you really think, do you really believe that God cares? If you don't, you need to back up. Matthew 8, 2. Behold, the leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you could make me clean. Why did he pray that? Like I just said, because he believed that God could do it. You know, these things are, are not earth-shattering exposition. Desire it, believe it. Here's another real simple one. Ask the Holy Spirit for help. He's been given to you to help you pray, as you should. Ask him to do so. He's actually a personal being who lives within you. The Holy Spirit of God, given for this purpose, to help you with your prayers. Ask him to help. 
Romans 8.26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Ask him to help. Ask him to pray for you. I do that often. God, I'm not sure how to pray for this thing. Will you just take over here for me? And if you're like me, you come up against these things regularly. Not really knowing how to pray for something or someone. Fourthly, motivate yourself to pray. This, this, we could talk about this a little bit longer than I'm going to, but be intentional about it. Isaiah 64, verse 7. There's no one who calls on your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. This is, this is the prophet Isaiah, or, yeah, the prophet Isaiah speaking to the people of Israel, challenging them with their lethargic spiritual lives. There's no one who calls upon your name. No one rouses himself to take hold of you. That's Isaiah complaining to God about these things. And as a result, you've hidden your face from us and made us melt in the hand of, your, of our iniquities. So we need to rouse ourselves, sometimes out of bed. <laughs> rouse ourselves. Make prayer a priority. Um, hold one another accountable as marriage partners or as small group members. Rouse yourself to prayer. Take hold of God. Have, it, have prayer be an important part of your life and your pursuit of God. Corey ten Boom asked this, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Which one is it? Is it in the back, in the trunk, in case something goes wrong, or is it part of your daily life? Now let's, let's wrap this up with a call to intimate prayer. A call to intimate prayer. <clears throat> My first sub-point here is <clears throat> same God, new relationship. <clears throat> when Jesus arrived on the scene, he introduced a new way to think about God, didn't he? He taught in Matthew 6, 9, which we heard this morning, to address God as Father. <laughs> this was paradigm shifting for those people and controversial, so much so that the religious leaders of Jesus' day wanted to stone him because of it. He, they said this, this is, or John said this about them, John 5.18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Understanding God as our father invites us to intimacy, doesn't it? You may have had a, a dysfunctional family life. You may have had a bad father, but that's not God the Father. Understanding God as our Father invites intimacy, invites earnestness in prayer. It also encourages expectation in prayer, anticipation in prayer. Why? Because this God who hears us is our Father, and He loves us as a perfect Father would. A perfect Father. As you always wish your earthly father would love you, is how God loves you. J.I. Packer wrote this concerning this matter. You sum up the whole 
of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new, better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. In Psalm 119, 145, if you'll look back there with me, if you're not there currently, the psalmist addresses God as Lord, capital O, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, Yahweh, not Father, Yahweh. This name for God, Yahweh, spoke to Israel of what God was in himself rather than what he would be in relation to them. This name of God was given in order to awaken a sense of awe, of humility, of submission before the divine Holy One, more than any other communication. The holiness of God was the intended viewpoint of the name Yahweh. This is what we see all over the Old Testament, but especially in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. And one called to another... And as the angels called one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This could be the motto of the Old Testament. Yahweh is holy. He's separate. He's other. He's beyond. But then God became man. <laughs> A lot changed. This beautiful discovery comes to us in John chapter 1, verse 1 through 18. Things changed. God and religion are no, no less than what they were. God remains holy and demands humility and submission to himself, but something very important had been revealed when Jesus came. Something new has come. Listen, God is a loving heavenly Father who has great personal interest in your welfare. Personally. He knows you by name. He knows everything about you. He knows everything that's going to be about you. He loves you personally because he is our father who created us, loves us, and desires to be with us. But let me tell you a very important point. This particular relationship with God the Father is reverse, reverse, reserved rather for those who come to him humbly acknowledging their sin and need of forgiveness. It's just not a general fatherhood of God to the brotherhood of man. No, it's a fatherhood of God to those who come to him by faith in Jesus Christ, period. In fact, if you remember what Jesus called those who disagreed with him on this matter, you were sons of your father, the devil. <laughs> not father, God. You see, God is not the fathers of those who reject him, those who reject his son, you must embrace Jesus personally to benefit from this father relationship. So here you go, friends. Here's the call. Come, believe, follow. 
and God will be your father. New Testament believers are to relate to God as their father. Christians are his children. The stress of the New Testament is not on the difficulty and danger of relating to God or fearing God, drawing into his presence like it was in the Old Testament. Our relationship now is focused on boldness, confidence, and affection as we approach him. Ephesians 3.12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. We heard from Hebrews 4 earlier, but here's Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, earnestly, and full of assurance of faith. Friends, to all of us who believe the holy God of the Old Testament is our loving Father. This creates a desire for intimacy for fellowship, for communion that the Old Testament believers did not have. We belong in the presence of our loving Father, relating to him as a kind and benevolent and personal father, even friend, we're told. Even when we wander or falter in the Christian life, we must think of God as the father in the parable of the prodigal son. Remember him? He stood there waiting daily, hoping that his son would return to him. And when he did, with open arms and kissing him, that's the father that we know as Christians. This is the heart of the New Testament message. This develops intimacy in prayer, in fellowship. Secondly, we have the same God as the Old Testament, but easier prayer. In John's gospel, Jesus' relationship to his heavenly father communicated a couple of things, and here they are. One, affection. Jesus' relationship to God was affectionate. <clears throat> John 5.20, for the father loves the son. We knew that. That's not anything new to you, right? But I made a point of this when, we were, when I was preaching through John. Chapter 16, verse 27, said the father has affection for the son in the same way he has affection for us. Did you hear that? God the Father loves you, has affection for you in the same way, in the same way he has affection for Jesus Christ, his son. That is profound. That makes you want to run into his presence, doesn't it? Secondly, uh, Jesus' relationship to his heavenly father in the Gospel of John introduces this idea of fellowship. Fellowship. John 8, 29, Jesus said, He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. There was an ongoing fellowship. If you, if you know the Gospels, this is one of the things that sticks out to you. Jesus related in, in a, an affectionate fellowship with his Father all the time. In the same way, though, the Father has fellowship with the Son, as we see in God, John's Gospel clearly, he also has fellowship with us. Fellowship with you and me, if you know Christ. 1 John 1.3, that which we have seen and heard and proclaimed to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We've been invited into the fellowship. Have you come to Christ? Do you, have you laid your sins at the feet of Jesus? Have you embraced him as your Lord and Savior? 
then you have been invited into the fellowship of the Trinity. <laughs> I, I think that's amazing. You are now in, not out. One reason our prayers are easier now is because we have participation in this divine fellowship. We're in the middle of it. And we not only are part of it, but we have a divine representative standing next to God the Father, whose name is Jesus Christ, interceding for us, praying for us, inviting us. And we have the Holy Spirit of God living in us. As it says, back to Romans 8, 15 and 26, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, the sons by whom we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. That's what Abba means, Daddy. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Friends, we are part of the inner circle. Do you know Jesus? Have you submitted yourself to him completely and embraced him as your Lord and Savior? If so, you're not only welcome in his presence, but are drawn into his presence by God himself to commune, to rest, to rejuvenate, to be restored. Friends, we've been saved to prayerfully commune with our loving Heavenly Father. And it's an intimate, meaningful communion. One of the ways that we're reminded of this communion every single month is that we offer communion to you as God's people. Not to you if you're in attendance, to you if you're in Christ, if you're in the fellowship. You are offered these elements of the Lord's Supper to remind you of this intimacy you have with the triune God. You're participating in that inner circle by taking into your body physically these elements that represent Christ greater than any other thing, his broken body and spilt blood for you. These things remind you of that intimacy, of that affection that God has for you. And so today as you come forward and we serve you one at a time, remember that it is God who's calling you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, who's yearning for your presence, for your fellowship, for your communion as you participate. Don't come flippantly. Come earnestly. Make it a walk of prayer as you come forward this morning. Elders, who are going to help me, I ask that you come forward at this time. I'm going to read for you the words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11. After I pray, I'm going to invite you to come forward and just make two lines here. Uh, you can socially distance if you'd like. Um, but come forward in two separate rows. Andy and Rick will serve you. Um, Rick. Whitmer will serve you if you're in the commons. Um, and, and I want you to, to hear and feel the love of Christ as these elders representing Christ serve you. And so 
I'm going to read these, these uh, words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11, and then I'm going to pray and ask you to come forward. And when you come forward, you don't need to wait for, for me to instruct you further. Take the elements when you'd like, all right? And God will meet you there. <clears throat> For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Oh, Father, we, we bow our hearts and heads in joy and thanksgiving as we think of all that you have done for us in Christ. As we think of being invited into the circle of fellowship, the triune God inviting us into fellowship, what a glorious blessing. Father, now as we, as we come forward in faith and receive these elements in faith, I ask that you would remind each and every believer of your deep abiding love for them. I pray that you would draw their hearts into an intimate, earnest communion and fellowship right now in this room. Father, do your work in us. Bless us in the beloved, the beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Stir up our hearts, Holy Spirit, to embrace these things wholeheartedly. Help us to pursue communion with you, not just now, but in the days that come. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.